People wonder what happened to the kingdom of Israel. People ask questions like, is God done with the nation of Israel as a kingdom and as a people? Or does God actually have a plan for the future of Israel as it relates to his eternal plan to bring redemption? And what does it mean that God has actually taken the kingdom from the nation of Israel, like Jesus says in the New Testament? I think in order for us to actually answer these questions correctly, uh, we need to understand what God's original purpose was for Israel as a nation and as a kingdom and what it looked like for them to function as a kingdom unto God. Then we can properly understand the eternal kingdom of God and our role in God's kingdom. Episode one and two of this whole series about the kingdom of God, we've talked about the kingdom of darkness, the chaos realm. Uh, the enemy kingdom that's in rebellion to God, both in the heavenly realms and on the earth. We've talked about um, what God's plan is for the enemy kingdoms and what that's going to look like for God's kingdom to take over. And now we get to talk about Israel. And the reason we're going here is because Israel was originally set up to be a kingdom and a people unto God, a chosen nation. God set apart people from the nations to reveal his character to the nations, right? And so Israel has a huge role to play in the kingdom of God. But Israel, sadly, as a nation throughout its history, becomes a prime example of what it looks like for a nation to be called, a people to be called, um, but for the ways of the enemy to leak into that nation and ultimately for that nation to adapt the ways of Satan and his kingdom and be in rebellion to God rather than be a, a kingdom unto God, they end up being in rebellion to God. Israel is a prime example of, you know, um, a people turning rebels. And so uh, we as the people of God now in God's kingdom through Christ, we can't function properly without understanding God's original intent and heart for, for Israel as a nation. And so some questions we'll be answering today. And I know some of you are like, this ain't for me. You'd be surprised. You'll be very surprised. I would encourage you to watch to the end. Um, and we're going to answer questions like, what was Israel originally set up to be? What does it mean they were a nation and a kingdom? What does that involve? And how does that relate to the surrounding cultures and nations around them? What was their original function? And what does it mean that the kingdom was taken from them? Jesus uses this language time and time again throughout his parables, that the kingdom is taken from Israel nationally. And everyone comes to their own conclusions about what that means. God is done with Israel, or God has a plan for Israel, or God has a, a partial involvement for Israel in the eternal plan for humanity, and Israel gets to play a role in the future, but not the way they originally were going to. Everyone has their different conclusions they come to, so I just want to be honest with the text of Scripture and reason through these things with you and remind you that kingdoms, okay, every human kingdom on the planet right now has an expiration date. The clock is ticking, right? And so ultimately, uh, the clock will wind down and human nations will come to an end. Human kingdoms in rebellion to God will be handed over um, to God and his kingdom and taken over by his kingdom. Kingdoms involve government, political structure, hierarchy. Kingdoms involve territory, a domain of rulership. Kingdoms involve a king or a ruler with power and authority. Kingdoms involve um, citizens and servants of that ruler. Kingdoms involve influence, a degree of glory and reputation and renown. Kingdoms involve, um, you know, dominion, reign, sovereignty, royal power, all of those things. And what you're going to see specifically about uh, ancient civilizations and the nations, um, uh, you know, during the times of the Bible and the Old Testament is what we think of now as kingdoms um, is, is quite different than the way kingdoms originally were set up. And, and, I'll, and I'll say it like this. Originally, 
the way kingdoms function, and I don't know if it's much different today. It's just maybe more hidden. This stuff is more in the background. But kingdoms and nations throughout the scriptures and historically are built around a deity or a set of deities. This is just historically true of, of, of peoples and cultures and nations and kingdoms is that they're built around a set of supernatural beliefs about, you know, uh, the cosmos and how things came into existence and who's in charge and what's the hierarchy. So what you need to understand is as we unpack this and as we understand our role in the kingdom, originally, and I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy 29 to show you this, you have a lot of language in the Old Testament that supposes it's just an understood fact that nations were set up around their deity or set of deities and gods. Deuteronomy 29, 16 through 18 This is what um, Moses says to the people of Israel. He says, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt, how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you've seen their detestable things. What's he talking about? Their idols of wood and stone, their foreign gods of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Now, I'm not going to go anywhere near in depth that I've recommended this book in the last two episodes. Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, is a fantastic read in making sense of these things. I'm not going to go that deep, but these things do overlap with the kingdom of God, and I have to touch on them at least a bit. Okay, There are gods of the nations, lowercase g, beings who have rulership and authority that God has given them um, and, you know, a degree of a sphere of influence and domain. These spiritual beings, I know some of you aren't comfortable with saying um, lowercase g gods, that's fine. These spiritual beings, um, which foreign nations and, and pagan nations look to as their capital G God, you know, these are the gods of the nations that Moses refers to. So it's just an understood fact that nations have their own lowercase g gods, idols, um, spiritual beings, if you might add, because Paul talks about how behind idols uh, is nothing but demons, demonic forces behind the idols that are being worshipped. He says the idols are nothing, but there are spiritual beings and corrupt, detestable, unclean spirits behind idols and, and worship of foreign gods. And Deuteronomy 29, Moses is making it very clear that, yes, the nations do have their own set of deities that they worship. Do not worship those. There's only one true living God, and there's none beside him. There's none like him. He's the only true and living, eternally existent one, the creator of the universe. Judges 10, verse 6, it says, The people of Israel, again, <laughs> just the, the history of their nation, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals. And the Ashtaroth. So just, just look at the list of nations. The gods of Syria, which I'll highlight in green, uh, purple. The gods of Sidon, okay, this is historically how the people of Israel continue to rebel against God. They give themselves over to foreign spiritual beings and idols. The gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Now, that's by no means an exhaustive list. And they forsook the Lord and didn't serve him. It is an understood fact, especially in that culture and time, that the pagan nations surrounding Israel, including Egypt, including Babylon, they have 
their own god, lowercase g, and idols that they worship. That there's a deity that becomes the pinnacle and the focus of every nation and kingdom. That's just an understood fact. Second Kings seventeen twenty nine also clarifies this. Every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. And so what you have are the surrounding nations. I believe what we have here is the king of Assyria um, actually putting people from nations that he's conquered and he's putting those uh, conquered individuals into the territory of Israel because he's taken over Israel. Not Jerusalem and Judah, but Israel for now, the northern region. And he's placing these foreign peoples into the, you know, the cities of Israel to occupy those towns and communities and cities. And, and what you have happening is uh, God actually brings judgment because they're not treating his land as holy and sacred. And the king of Assyria recognizes this. And he goes, send some of the priests uh, from, from Israel to go and teach the laws of the God of this land. So it's an understood fact, not just with you know, the idea that there were foreign gods of nations, but that nation, that, that deity or set of deities that they worshipped had a sphere of, of influence. There was a territory that, that, you, know, that you would uh, prescribe to that deity that you were worshiping, whatever nation you were in, the Philistines, the, you know, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Tyre, the gods of the Egyptians, there was land attached to that. There's almost territory given to each of these foreign deities. And so the king of Syria recognizes that in Israel, the God of this land and this territory physically, he has different ways that are foreign to us and the exiles need to learn his ways. So one of the priests you know, whom they'd carried away from Samaria. We have an Israelite priest coming in, uh, presumably a Levitical priest. You would hope so, but they didn't seem to follow Torah that well up to this point. He lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But then you have verse 29, but every nation, so you have, you know, people from every nation occupying the cities of Israel. Every nation still made gods of its own and put up their own shrines of the high places that the Samaritans have made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth, Benoth. The men of Cuth made, I'm going to mess up all these names, good luck. Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tart- Tartak. And the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Amalek, the gods of Sephirvim. But they also feared the Lord. <laughs> in other words, they just make God another one of their beings that they worship and bow down to. They go, oh, the God of Israel is one of the gods in our chain of gods that we have. Check it out. They collected gods like Pokemon cards. And so what you have are the foreign nations occupying the land of Israel, bringing their foreign pagan ways of worship into that land, not treating God's land as sacred and holy, not to get into too much of this, but the the idea that I'm trying to draw out for you is that every nation and people and tribe and and culture has its own set of spiritual beings or main deity they worship. And I don't think it's any different today, to be very honest. I don't believe. It's just more hidden. It's harder to sift through and find at the core and heart of every kingdom and nation set up today and tribe and people what deities or set of or deity they end up worshiping, which is no God at all. We know that. There's only one true living God. But the point still stands, they look to these idols or whatever 
is truly behind that idol as their source of life and nourishment and help and protection. First Chronicles 16, again, and I'm just trying to, because some of you like aren't working from this framework. So I'm trying to almost work backwards to help you have the foundation for us to move forward. First Chronicles 16, 23 through 27. It says, sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous works among all the peoples. Okay, so we're talking about the nations, the peoples, the, you know, the different cultures that surround Israel. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all lowercase g gods, Elohim, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. So this isn't the only place in the Old Testament by any means where God is actually compared to the foreign deities or idols or lowercase g gods of the nations. Um, there's so many places where this takes place. Um, but the point is, God is the true eternally existent creator who sustains all life. Everything else that you choose to bow down to is nothing more than a worthless idol that is not worth worship. But the gods of the nations are what's in focus. Okay? So I also want you to see, and you're going, how does this relate to Israel? What the heck are we doing? Because when God sets up Israel as a kingdom, when God sets up Israel as a nation and a people, if you don't understand the background context and the culture that surrounds this kingdom of Israel and what God is doing with his people, it'll trickle down to how you function in the kingdom now. And there's so much truth to be unpacked here that really does impact the way we live on a daily basis when you see it all. So not only are there lowercase g gods appointed over the nations that the the peoples worship and bow down to that are nothing more than worthless idols, that are nothing more than, if you read Unseen Realm and you see how Michael Heiser unpacks this, nothing more than spiritual beings, lesser spiritual beings that have a degree of authority and rule that rebelled against God. They're nothing more than created beings When you see that, you also need to understand that God actually brings judgment against the gods of the nation. So number one, kingdoms and peoples were structured and built around their deity or set of false gods. That is so important for us to understand when we get to God setting up Israel as his kingdom. It's a theocracy, meaning God is king. There's no human appointed ruler. God is supposed to be king. Then you have you know, the people going, we want a human king like the surrounding nations in First Samuel. But such was never the original uh, or such was never the complete plan. That was never uh, the best that God had for his people was appointing a fallible, finite, you know, sinful human being. That's why that's just how we make sense of how Jesus comes into this whole thing. He's the perfect one. He's the one that we could never be. He's the, you know, the ultimate image bearer of God because he's the actual image of God, you know, made flesh. All this different stuff gets unpacked. But God brings judgment against the gods of the nations. And you'll see this time and time again. It's not just that peoples earn judgment for themselves. It's not just that nations bring wrath upon themselves. It's that the judgment and wrath God pours out is, yes, upon people and nations, but also simultaneously upon their gods, bringing them to nothing, showing the peoples of the world that these false idols are nothing more than, you know, things made by human hands. 
Exodus 12.12, and it's a fantastic study of each different sign and wonder that comes on Egypt. You think about the plagues, typically referred to as the plagues that God brings on Egypt. Each of those correlates to a specific God of the Egyptians that they look to for some kind of care, protection, provision, or life. Okay, so beyond that, though, Exodus 12.12 says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night talking about what God is going to do through the angel of death that comes in and kills the firstborn of the Egyptians, those who don't have the blood on the doorpost. He says, I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, right? Also, the night of Passover. It's literally why it's called Passover. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Now watch. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. This is the Old Testament narrative somewhat wrapped up in one verse. Is God is consistently bringing judgment upon pagan nations, which Israel ends up becoming like the pagan nations around it. And he brings judgment against the gods of those nations to prove I am the, the Lord. I am the eternally existent one. This is the Lord speaking saying, I am the only true and living God that sustains life and brings things into existence and makes things that were not. I'm the only one. There's no one beside me, no one like me. So the way God reveals that and makes that truth abundantly clear to humanity is by bringing down the gods of the nations. How? How do you practically make a statement about false idols that they're nothing? Well, you show the nations of those gods that those gods bring no protection and life to them by actually bringing judgment against those nations that the false idols can't do anything about. Otherwise, if they could, those nations would still be standing. But God is simultaneously uh, bringing down the false gods and the people's trust in those false gods. It's very important. Exodus 33 is another statement like this. And for some of us, I, I get that this is a brand new set of ideas, and I don't want to overload you. I do not want to do that. But this is just necessary to provide the framework for what Israel is as a kingdom. Exodus 33 says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Is this not the right verse? I think it's Exodus 3, 13. Gosh darn it. Hold on. I'm going to find it. This happens all the time. I end up pasting the wrong scripture. I was reading that going, I think this is about to, Numbers 33. Thank you, Lord. Numbers. Go with me to Numbers. It says, they set out from Ramses in the first month. Ignore what I just read, <laughs> even though it probably relates. On the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the people of Israel, this is recounting the Exodus narrative, they went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, right? While the Egyptians were bearing all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Now something to consider. Is it just metaphorically that God is bringing judgment against these what the nations perceive to be gods, though they're non-existent, they're not even alive, they're, they're just theoretical, you know, they're not even real. Is God just metaphorically bringing judgment on those non-existent beings by what he does to the nations? Or is there real judgment 
just as much as it's coming upon the people that's coming upon any spiritual being that is over those nations that these nations call their gods. Is there actual, like literal judgment being executed in the, in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places upon these beings through what God does to the nations? Just something to consider because people will typically chalk this up to no more than you know, triumphant language. Well, he's being metaphorical. It's an analogy. It's symbolic. It's, and I'm all for that kind of language when it's truly employed. And when the context gives us reason to, to, to think this is more symbolic, but time and time again, God makes statements about bringing judgment on a set of gods, lowercase g idols. And you have to wonder, would God make statements, uh, like that, when in fact there's no there's no beings to really judge. It's just an idea. The idols are nothing. There's no real gods. There's no real lowercase g gods, spiritual beings over the nations. It's just a, a way to God for God to re, you know relay how conquering and triumphant He is. Something to think about. Exodus twenty three. Um, it says, "I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the to the Euphrates." And he's talking about the land that's going to be allotted to the nation of Israel. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out from before you. So what you need to understand is Israel is sent as God's agent of judgment. Not that they're righteous in any means, but God uses, just like he uses Babylon to bring judgment on Israel later, God uses Israel to bring the necessary judgment and consequences of sin upon the people that are currently in the promised land. He says, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. Pause. What? How do you make covenant? Well, it's just, you know, by coming under the people's yoke and worshiping the gods they do. That's what he's talking about. Okay. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And you go, why? Why did you bring that up? Because there's another warning. This is just about the gods of the nations. Lowercase g. I want to make that very clear. Spiritual beings. I think it's going to bother people that I say that. So I'll say spiritual beings that are rebellious to God, seemingly, who are over the nations, God is bringing judgment on them. The carved images of their lowercase g gods, this is why I read Exodus 23. God says, don't don't make a covenant with the nations because by doing so, you're actually going to align yourself with their gods and come under their yoke of bondage and it's going to end very badly for you. And this is historically what happens time and time again. Deuteronomy 7 gives us clarity on what God is doing through the nation of Israel, okay? When he says, go and destroy the nations, people pause and go, this is terrible. All this unnecessary bloodshed. It's just a bloodbath. Pause. What God is doing behind the scenes is more than just bringing judgment on a nation. That is part of it. But look at what he specifically tells Israel to do when they go into the promised land to clear the land of the pagan peoples that are doing abominations. He says the carved images of their lowercase g gods burn with fire. Now, why is that very important for God to highlight? Well, number one, so they do not end up worshiping those false gods. And bro, we're just going to keep them around, but we're going to make a mockery of them. We're going to bring them into our tent and we're going to parade them around and we're just going to beat them up every now and then. Just There's no reason to bring idols into the camp of Israel and into that territory that belongs to the God of Israel. There's no reason to. To do so would be to 
put an unnecessary temptation in the face of the peoples because they're known for their idolatry. So God says, burn them. Do not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. It's an abomination to the Lord. Why does God make it very clear that he needs the people of Israel to destroy the idols? Again, number one, to prevent any kind of worship. But also, Deuteronomy 12, 2 through 3, it says, Destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. So it's not just destroy the idols. Destroy, you know, what the idols, or destroy the idols because they represent something deeper and more sinister. He says, the very places where the pagan nations bow down to their idols, on the high mountains, under every green tree, wherever they serve their gods, destroy those places too. Kind of. Why? God, we could use this space for something else. Can't we redeem this and set up a nice coffee shop for Israel? You shall tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, burn their ash room with fire, chop down the carved images of their gods, and destroy their name out of that place. There are some things that cannot be redeemed or used for God. Idols and the pagan ways of worshiping, those are just a couple of things that can't be redeemed. Well, I'm just going to do it unto God. God doesn't want to be worshiped like that. Well, I'm just going to keep the idols around. God doesn't want you to. Destroy the very places where those nations serve their gods. Destroy their name out of their reputation. Their, any kind of them being known and this is what they want. Destroy all of it. Leave nothing that relates to these false gods in those places. There were places of worship that would take place in pagan nations. It was just how the kingdoms of the world were set up. This is how cultures were set up around not just these deities that they, you know, thought were gods, but were nothing more than idols, but also the nations and kingdoms were set up around these places that were considered sacred ground unto their false gods. And it's very important for us to understand that. And there's no way I can fully capture in this one message all that goes into this, but I'm just trying to whet your appetite to show you what Israel was supposed to be as a nation and why. Because the surrounding kingdoms, the surrounding nations functioned in this way. They had their set of gods. They had their places of worship. They had the sacred space that they would go and do their thing to their false gods, which was abominable practices. And then around that, the nation of the empire was built. But the infrastructure, the framework of an entire nation and people was centralized around this concept that we have our set of gods, we have our set of practices, we have our places, and now out from that come the ways of the kingdom, the way we interact, the way we do things in marketplace, the way we handle business, the way we handle you know marriage and sex life. All of that flows from that. And it's very important for us to understand why God calls his people to do what they do, to burn those places to the ground so that there's no nothing left of those false gods. And maybe you can understand why I'm going here. Maybe. Maybe you don't yet, but I'll make it very clear in just a little bit. Exodus 34 says, Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. God is constantly warning his people. 
just reminding you over and over again, when you go in, do not make a covenant with the peoples. It will become a snare. It's going to become like shackles. You're shackling yourself and putting yourself in prison by choosing to enter into covenant with the nations because you will adapt their pagan practices and their false gods and all the consequences that come with that. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their ashram. You shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. He's a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And and when they whore after their gods, quite the imagery, right? When they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you're invited, you eat of his sacrifice. Now you know why Paul talked about what he did in 1 Corinthians, how it was a big deal and it always has been. And you take of their daughters for your sons and we're just marrying them. We're not getting into their pagan practices. We just like their women. Well, when you do that, King Solomon, you're going to end up whoring after their gods too. And then you'll make your sons whore after their gods and it'll just slowly take over. This is why Paul will say in the New Testament, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's just a decision to engage in marital practices with the surrounding women of the nations. All we're doing, just being romantic, that turns into idolatry, that turns into judgment, that turns into the land is now clear of Israel and you end up in exile. It slowly happens like that. So the point of this is God brings judgment against the gods of the nations. If it wasn't a big deal, then God would say, look, I'll just just take care of the peoples. But he mentions the gods of those nations when it comes to Israel bringing any judgment or when it comes to God bringing judgment against Egypt, against the Canaanites, against the surrounding nations, whatever it is. The focus seems to be for God. Yes, the peoples are getting what they deserve, but the sinister spirits and beings behind those nations seem to also be getting some degree of judgment upon them too. Whatever God ends up doing. So know this, and if I haven't made this clear already, it's going to be clear now. Kingdoms were built around a God, set of gods in their minds, and the focus of that kingdom was around, like we said, sacred space on mountains, under high, under you know green trees, whatever it ends up being. There were high places to worship. There were what you would refer to nowadays as temples, temple worship, sacred places of doing things unto this, these gods that they would consider this will bring favor, this will bring rain, this will bring harvest. And these pagan worship practices unto these false gods are what takes place in these sacred spaces or what they would consider to be temples often. Amos 7, 12 through 13, it says, Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, now Amaziah is not a good guy by any means. Um, Amaziah is the priest of Bethel at the time. And he is giving Jeroboam, the king of Israel, very bad advice. Amos, however, is sent from God as a prophet. Amos didn't ask. Amos was just out in his farm one day, minding his own business. And God goes, you're going to be a prophet. Okay. Okay, God, let's do this. So we have Amaziah giving Jeroboam, the king, very bad advice. And he's going, Amos conspired against you in the house of Israel, and, and the land is not able to bear all his words. Amos said Jeroboam's going to die by the sword. Well, that is going to happen. Amos is just declaring what God said to say. And, and he also said Israel must go into exile away from this land. Now, as a king and as a people, you don't want to hear that. 
You don't want to hear that your God has sent a prophet to tell you you're going to be taken out of your land. You're going to die by the sword, you king, and it's going to be terrible for you. That's not news you want to hear. Amaziah said to Amos, because remember Amaziah is the priest of Bethel, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah. Eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. Bethel was, for Israel at the time, sacred space. That was just a place where spiritual practices took place, a place where it was, you know, set apart unto God, but it had slowly become corrupted. And now it is, in their mind, sacred space, but not unto the God of Israel. Now look at how he refers to Bethel, this place. It is the king's sanctuary. It is a temple of the kingdom. It is a temple of the kingdom. Now you could go to 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 10, and you'll see the temple of Ashtaroth. You can go to 1 Chronicles 10.10, and you can look at the temple of Dagon. You can go to Ezra 5.14 and look at the temple of the Babylonian gods. The concept is there in Scripture that these nations, with their gods, set apart places spaces that they considered sacred unto their false deities. And when you understand that kingdoms were built around this framework, it makes sense what God does when he institutes Israel as a kingdom. Because again, the greater question is, what does God do with Israel now as a nation? National Israel, are they a kingdom? What does it mean the kingdom is taken? All of that background information is necessary to understanding how Israel was supposed to function and why God does what he does to them later on. Exodus 19, 5 through 6. This is what God says to the people of Israel through Moses. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, there's an if. Here's the condition. If you keep my covenant, there's the condition. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. This is what the Lord says, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a what? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Notice, Moses is not talking just to the Levites. Moses is not talking just to the Aaronic priesthood and those who descend from Aaron. He's talking to the entire nation as a people and saying, here's what God wants for you, to obey his voice, keep his covenant. Essentially, what that means is you're going to be or function as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. In other words, priestly service While in our minds we go, the Levitical priesthood handles the temple sacrifices and and all the stuff that goes on in the tabernacle and and the the menorah and the table of showbread and all the sacrifices and the day of atonement, the high priest handles that. While we think of that, there is a truth to the fact that God instituted Israel to be his people in order to function as a kind of priesthood to the rest of the nations. In other words, there was still a spiritual responsibility on the part of the whole nation that was centrally focused around the Levites and their, you know, their service in the tabernacle and, and Aaron and the high priest and his service on the Day of Atonement. Of course, that is the central focus of it as well. But if you go a layer outward, 
if you look at the concentric circle of Israel, you know, functions around the Levites, it's a theocracy, and sent, in a sense, the tabernacle functions as God's dwelling place among his people, where he reigns from, you might say his throne room, right? So that's the holy sacred space of the God of Israel. He's the king. But around that, outside of the Levites and Aaron's descendants, Israel is supposed to have a priestly function to the rest of the nations. And you go, how? They were supposed to be set apart and different and function as a sacred people who is following a very sacred, holy, otherly God. And what that looks like is you would obey his voice. That's what it means to keep the covenant. You keep the words that God has spoken to you if you're the people of Israel. So Israel is a theocracy. Meaning what? God is king and the people function as his citizens, but not just as consumers. We're taken care of, we're provided for as servants. How? To embody the ways of their God to the nations. How? By doing what is prescribed in the law. Because the law actually reveals the character and the heart and the ways of God. And it shows them how to function as his holy people and how to perform their priestly duties as a nation to the surrounding nations and peoples. Let me take you to another scripture. We typically think of priesthood as being restricted to the Levites and Aaron and while that is true, they did have a unique responsibility that no other tribe could claim. The rest of the nation still had a duty to God as their king to function as holy servants and embody his ways to the world. Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, it says, When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, this is God saying what will happen, what is supposed to happen for any human king that will reign over Israel. Because he knows it's going to happen. So he's giving guidelines. If It's not ideal, to be very clear, it's not ideal that a fallible, finite, sinful human would sit on the throne of God's holy nation. Which is why Jesus comes in, okay, to fix all that mess. But God does, since it's not ideal, and the people are going to inevitably want it, and it's going to happen. God's just giving guidelines, okay? You ever wanted something for your kids that they don't want, and you're like, fine, this isn't ideal for this situation, but I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to let you do it. Here are some guidelines, though. That's what's happening in Deuteronomy 17. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, any king of Israel, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. So at the center of, at the heart of the kingdom of Israel, you have God as king, you have his sacred space, what you would consider his throne room, the place from which he reigns. You would have his law, his guide, his rules for his people, his citizens, how they should function, right? And then you'd have the, the, those who are close to him as servants, those who are in, in the inner circle and have a close proximity to the king, the Levites, the Aaronic priesthood, the high priest, all of that was at the heart of Israel as a kingdom, and even if a human king is going to come along and set up shop and be like, 
I'm the big guy in town now. God goes, okay, big guy, but there's still guidelines for you. You can write for yourself a copy of my law so you can know it. This is what God tells Joshua to meditate on his law. Approved by the Levitical priest. In other words, there are overseers to make sure you ain't messing with stuff and go, God wants you guys to give me all your money. All God said, it shall be with him and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law. So there are rules for the king. The king is not to be some, you know, autonomous, uh, oppressive ruler outside of God. I'm not, I don't need to follow God. I am God. None of that garbage. No, you're going to fear the Lord. You're going to do what he says. And here we have a picture of what the garden was always supposed to be for humanity. We reign, we rule under his authority and we do what he says. By keeping the words of this law, the king is supposed to do those statutes and, and learn to fear the Lord that he might not become lifted up, prideful, arrogant, above his brothers that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to do the either to the right hand or to the left that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children so what was israel supposed to be as a nation and a kingdom theocracy and even if a human ruler was going to come along you do what the lord the ultimate king says you follow his ways you learn to fear him all the days of your life You never rise above what he says. You're always underneath that. And you meditate on his law. You copy this law. You read his law. You're just, as a king, you're somewhat of a Bible nerd, aren't you? Know this law, copy it down, meditate on it, keep the, what? Why is the, why is the, the word of God, the Torah at the heart of the nation of Israel? Because a nation needs to know what it's supposed to do and how to function so, some, a few things to consider. The sacrificial system alongside God and his sacred space and his law and his, you know, uh, Levitical priesthood is the sacrificial system. We have the sacrificial system. It's set up as the central operating system of God's chosen nation. And you go, how could you say that? Well, the entire kingdom revolves around God and his laws and the prescribed way he's instituted for people to approach him and bring gifts and offerings and sacrifices and deal with ritual impurity. It's called the sacrificial system. And there's a sacred space where this, pl- this worship takes, ha- takes place and happens. It involves a priesthood. So you can go to Second Chronicles 29. And I, I could read it to you. I guess I will. Because this is more or less me proving to you what I'm saying. Don't just take my word for it. We have Hezekiah, the king, rising early, gathering the officials of the city and going to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats for a sin offering for the entire kingdom. This isn't just for Hezekiah making restitution and fixing things. I I broke some stuff. I need to fix it. This is for the whole kingdom. This sounds like Job, right? Making sacrifices for his kids just in case they done messed up. And for the sanctuary. And for Judah. Wow. What a king. Historically, Hezekiah wasn't always amazing. But what a king right here. He commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. 
So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. Weird stuff, right? You don't do this at your Sunday service. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. Thank God <laughs> it's not taking place in church. And they slaughtered the lambs, and their blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly. Notice, uh, it, it's like, again, concentric circles. You have the people. You have those who have close proximity to the king. You have the king. You have God and his sacrificial system and his sacred space. And even the king is held to the standard of doing what God says in his law, which is to make sacrifice through the, through the Levitical priest on behalf of the people. They laid their hands on them and the priest slaughtered them uh, and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. And the king commanded the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all Israel. What's the emphasis over and over just in this text? I could bring you to Leviticus and Exodus. We don't have to go there. I'm just trying to show you an outside of Torah example where Hezekiah, the king of Judah, is making a burnt offering, not just for his local region, but for all of Israel. All of Israel. It's the idea of the sacrificial system being for the benefit of the entire nation. Not just a few of the people. Not just a kind of... All of the nation. First Samuel 11, 14 and 15, Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. So notice how the kingdom and the king are a part of this in both situations. So all the people went to Gilgal, another place where they would gather and unto the Lord, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. In other words, it's God's hand over this, not people's hand without God. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So we could look at text after text where at the heart of the king's rule and the kingdom is the sacrificial system because Israel's still a theocracy with God ultimately as the king over any human rulers, right? It's never to be human rulers rise above God's rule and authority, right? It's that these human rulers are under God's authority, even though they're established as kings. But what you have, sadly, throughout Israel's history, over and over again, historically, is this. 1 Samuel 8, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, this is God speaking to the prophet, he says, obey the voice of the people because they go, we want a people king, not an invisible king. We want a, a man like the other nations. Sounds like my son. Well, she has three. I want three too. Israel's doing that weird thing. God, we don't want you as king. We want a people king. God goes, ah, Samuel's pretty pissed. <laughs> He's not happy. And God goes, hey, obey the voice of the people and what they're asking they haven't rejected you. This is what the Lord says. They've rejected me. Specifically from being king over them. That's very tragic. It's very tragic. In order for them to be what God has called them to be as a, as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, it requires God to be their king and no other false gods being involved, no other idols being involved, and, and yet Israel will constantly look to other gods, which is why they begin to ask for what they do. They're being influenced by the pagan ways of the surrounding nations. So, 
I want to show you something, and it's this. I, to kind of backtrack, here's the outline of the message. Kingdoms and nations are built around you know, lowercase g gods, or in Israel's case, the true and living God. God brings judgment against the pagan nations and their false gods, right? And the kingdoms being focused around a deity or set of deities in their mind, lowercase g gods, involve the sacred space, temple, uh, whether it's on a high place or under uh, some green leafy trees. And also, Israel, now established as a theocracy, is supposed to almost be the answer to the surrounding nations and their false gods and everything going on with that. And God sends Israel in to clean house in the promised land and chooses them to be a kingdom of priests, which involves them having a temple and sacred space for God as their king and a priesthood and all that stuff, okay? But Israel rejects God repeatedly as their king. And this is why we see God's kingdom is repeatedly transferred and brought to an end with the temple with the temple being in focus. 1 Samuel 24, verse 20. This is just God speaking uh, to... uh, Sorry, this is Saul speaking to David. My man's been hunting down David day and night, pooping in caves, being weird. And now he's come face to face with David. And he says, you know what? I know you will surely be king and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And that's all I want to show you (laughs) is the idea of God taking the kingdom. We've looked at this in depth. God takes kingdoms and gives them to whom he pleases. Second Samuel three, nine and 10, it says, God do so to Abner and more also, if I don't accomplish for David, what the Lord has sworn to him. What did God swear to David? That's what I want to focus on. God swore that he would transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel. In other words, God is taking the kingdom from Saul and giving it to David because God does that. He's a G. Hosea 1 verse 4. The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel for in just a little while I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Now, you don't need to know much of the surrounding context, just the concept of God putting an end to the kingdom of of the house of Israel. What does that mean? Well, he's breaking the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. This is what Hosea's children, child here, singular, is named after. The name represents what God is going to do to Israel. He's going to put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Hmm. When you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it's as if this idea has been further developed in the mind of the Israelites. So you have the Hebrew people and the apostles specifically wondering. The apostles come to Jesus post-resurrection. Christ is ascended, so they're wondering, what now? <laughs> you just going to blow up everything? So when they came together, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What does that mean? In their minds... They're thinking rule, authority, sovereignty to be their own nation again because technically they do function as their own nation, but oh, it's underneath Rome. And it's been like that ever since Babylon and Assyria. And historically, it was never truly restored to the point of a king being over Israel the way it used to be. 
and started with Saul. So there is this idea that Hosea touches on, that God tells Hosea that the kingdom is taken from the house of Israel. And there might be a dual dimension to that prophecy, right, where God takes it and then it's given back later at the establishment of the temple where Ezra and Nehemiah come in and they set that whole thing up. So when God puts an end to the kingdom of Israel, specifically through the, through, uh, well, let's talk about Judah. When God puts an end to Judah and Jerusalem, which seems to be the last piece of the kingdom of Israel, when God knocks that over through the king of Babylon, right, the temple goes with it. And it's like, in the mind of the people of God, they're thinking, no temple, no place from God to reign from as sacred space, no real kingdom. You really can't be a theocracy. You really can't be a kingdom set apart unto God as a kingdom of priests without what they, you know, would say is the temple. So that, that that's what makes this whole thing tricky. When we go, what does it mean that God has taken the kingdom from Israel? Well, he said he'd do that in Hosea's day, or at least Hosea received word that it would happen by putting an end to the house of Jehu. So maybe it was that specific reign and that um, lineage and those people being in authority, or maybe it is, in fact, that both Israel and Judah will be sent into exile. They will be, the kingdom will be torn apart. It starts with uh, Solomon. God divides the kingdom, got the southern, northern tribes, but then it gets even worse. Now there's no kings. The whole land is polluted and filled with what they would consider, you know, pagan, unclean Gentiles. And the Israelites and the Jews have been taken away in exile into foreign lands. And then when they come back, it's not the same. But they do get their temple, and then they function like that under Babylon, and then or under uh, Persia, and then under Greece, Babylon. Uh, sorry, Rome. Mix that up. But the point is, the kingdom is never the same. It's not like what God instituted in the beginning, and I think that's for a reason. Now you can say, well, it is kind of restored, and the temple does come back, so they can still function somewhat as a kingdom of priests. Sure. But in AD 70, when the temple's destroyed, never to be, at least hasn't been rebuilt up to this point, you wonder, is is that really like almost the tr- what God was truly speaking of when he let Hosea know that there would be an end to the kingdom of Israel eventually? I think Jesus picks up on this quite well. Here's why, okay? God, th- at multiple times, will say, that the kingdom is indeed taken. Which means this, that during the time of Jesus, it was true that Israel had a degree of connection, a kind of connection to God and the kingdom. There was, watch, it's, it's baffled me for a while, but I think I've fleshed this out in my own head. Matthew 8, 11 through 12, it says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Them being the patriarchs, the superheroes of the faith that you would have on your undies and your lunchbox. And Jesus is going, there's lots of people who will come from the east and west 
And he's not talking about dispersed Jews and, and exiles who've been sent into the pagan nations. He's actually talking about the pagan nations. He's actually talking about not just tax collectors and prostitutes in the nation of Israel, but even Gentiles beyond the nation of Israel. Oof. And I'll show you why we're picking up on this. Because Jesus looks at a centurion who had more faith than anyone that he's come across in the entire nation. He literally says this, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. A Gentile has more faith than anyone in the nation of Israel. Tragic. So that's why he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and will recline at the table in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, let's think about this. How can you be cast out of God's kingdom while at the same time being referred to as a son of the kingdom? He's talking about ethnic, national Israel. Those who descend physically from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those who have the physical descent from them but don't have the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob which you'd say at times they showed their flaws. And the point is, God still brings a nation through them. And you'll either have the faith of Abraham, the patriarch, or you won't. And that's why you can, as an Israelite, be a son of the kingdom nationally, ethnically, and be a part of the kingdom of Israel, but not belong to the kingdom of heaven. Because watch what happens. And you go, I thought they were the same thing. I don't believe so. I don't believe so. Because whatever kingdom these Israelites being cast out of God's kingdom are a part of, right? It's not enough to be a part of the heavenly kingdom God brings through his son. In fact, Matthew 21, 43, the whole parable Jesus gives about the parable of the wicked tenants. The whole story is to say, you guys have simply occupied land God has lent to you. You guys are on borrowed time, borrowed land, borrowed breath. And God's going to hand that to another. Not just the land is what's in mind, but the point is this spot in God's chosen nation among the peoples, treasured possession, kingdom of priests, that spot you currently occupy because you physically descend from Abraham, ethnically, does not guarantee you a spot in God's kingdom of heaven. So the whole point of verse 43, he says, look, I tell you the kingdom of God And you go, well, this is the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of heaven. They're interchangeable. The gospel authors will use these interchangeably. People will say there's a difference between the two. There's not. There's a difference between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of God slash heaven, but not the kingdom of God in heaven. The gospel authors use them interchangeably. You can research that yourself. But he goes, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So now the question becomes, how is it that the kingdom of God, which is interchangeable with the kingdom of heaven, so now we're not even talking about the kingdom of Israel, that's not what's in view here. Jesus says, the kingdom of God itself 
which he says is a mustard seed growing into something big and beautiful and blossoming so people come and take refuge. Yeah, that kingdom that's going to overtake every kingdom like we see in Daniel's vision, that kingdom that's going to remain on the earth in new creation and no other kingdom, that ultimate kingdom is being taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So what we have to reconcile is this, that the rebellious, unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day have no spot in God's kingdom, ultimately. And yet they have a degree of connection to that kingdom in which it's taken from them. Now you can argue, well, that doesn't mean they fully possess this kingdom, just that it was available, right? So I can have something available. Let's use this remote as an example. I can have something that I'm holding out to you. This remote represents eternal life and the kingdom of God, and I'm holding it out. It's available, right? But if you don't accept that free gift through faith and believe in the gospel and trust in Jesus as Messiah, right? Well, when you die in that condition of unbelief and rebellion, this offer is taken away from you, isn't it? So there is a small window of time called this human life in which anyone can reach out and access what God has made available in his son, and it's through faith. But when you die, that opportunity is taken from you. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't say the opportunity to enter the kingdom. I get that. I get that. But I think the point still stands that whatever degree of connection Israel had to God's kingdom of heaven, it was only physical in nature. It was you descend from Abraham, your national Israel, you're his kingdom of priests, you are this chosen nation set apart from the Gentile peoples, for sure. But that connection to God's kingdom of heaven is really not entering into the kingdom of heaven. There's a difference. You can have a degree of proximity, and this is the, di- this is the language used in Hebrews in John chapter 15, is that people have a degree of connection to God in terms of I'm borrowing his breath, I'm living in his world, I, have, I, I can choose to believe in the gospel, I have a proximity to God that if I believe in the gospel, I close that gap and I'm in Christ. God puts me in Christ. I don't gain that, to be very clear, Calvinism. So I, through faith, God grants me that. But if I don't, then it's just simply within reach. And then you die and that opportunity is taken away from you. So what Jesus tells the people of Israel, he says, look, whatever degree of access you think you have through your national descent from Abraham physically and all the stuff you have, that's going to be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Here's also what I think is being said. And I pulled this from Romans 9 and Romans 1, and we'll look at that. What I think Jesus also means, and if you can read the whole context, the one who falls on this stone, he's talking about people. When he says the kingdom is taken, he's not saying temporarily. Or fr- he's saying you right now in unbelief have no share in the kingdom of heaven. It's taken from you. There's a sense in which what the kingdom of Israel had physically as a nation, okay, all of that is a part of, but not the fullness of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And you go, that's quite the statement. I don't really know what you mean. Hold that thought. I'll explain that in a second. Romans chapter 9 is where I go to to explain this. This is what Paul says when he weeps over his own people. The Israelites who should have known better, 
who had more access to God than any other nation, who had all that they could ask for. They had more reason to believe in God than any other people. And yet they fell short. And I wish they would know him. He goes, they are Israelites. They descend according to the flesh, right? To them belong the adoption. Look at the the Exodus narrative. That is a that is not just God liberating his people, but it is a kind of adoption. He makes them his people. He says, I will be I will be your God and you will be my people. There's an adoption taking place. That's why Israel is referred to as his firstborn in the Exodus narrative. They have the glory, which I believe refers to the Ark of the Covenant, and you know, in the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. They have the covenants, don't they? This is all the Israelites have just because they descend from Abraham and are a part of the nation. All that they have access to, all that they have. The covenants. The covenant God made with Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and the list goes on and on. The different promises. The giving of the law. Right? God writes it on stone, gives it to Moses, he brings it to the people. The worship which mainly is the sacrificial system and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, ultimately, according to the flesh, meaning, who did Jesus come through? He came through the nation of Israel. We have the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Here's what's sad. You can have all of this right here. I'm ethnic Israel. I descend from Abraham. You don't know my heritage. You don't know where I come from. You don't know our history. You can have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, all of those physical things. And you can still not have this. Access to God who is over all through his son. And that is the sad, that is the tragedy of the New Testament's portrayal of Israel. It's tragic. You could not have been closer physically. God could not have brought a nation closer to himself without them being grafted into him. It's as close as you could be without being in relationship to him. And with all that opportunity on a silver platter within reach, somehow most of the people of Israel fell short of that and the opportunity was taken and they died in unbelief. Isn't that tragic? So, this has been a conversation lately in our server. What does it mean that we're grafted into the root? What does it mean that we're nourished from the root? What does it mean that they're broken off and we're grafted in? What does that mean? We'll get into that tomorrow. I promise. But for now, know this. When Jesus says the kingdom is taken away from you, All of these things that were a part of the kingdom of Israel's benefits and their exclusive blessings, they don't matter if you don't know Christ and know God through the Son in faith. It doesn't do you any good. It's as if those things you once held on to, when you stand before God and you die, it's all taken away. And all that the kingdom of Israel represented physically All of those things have a spiritual counterpart in the actual kingdom of heaven, don't they? 
What does Jesus say to the woman at the well? Uh, no one's going to worship here or there. It's in worship. You worship in spirit and truth. What are the covenants? Well, the physical dimension of the covenants were what the people of Israel had. But to experience the spiritual dimension of those covenants, you had to have the faith of Abraham. That's what we have. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. What about the glory? Yeah, they had the ark. Yeah, they had the tabernacle and the temple. But now God says we collectively are the temple filled with his spirit and the glory of God. What about the adoption? Well, yeah, physically they had that adoption going through the Red Sea. But we have the spirit of adoption. And we're children of God through faith. What about the giving of the law? It's one thing to tell you what to do, and now you know what to do. It's another thing to have that law written on your hearts through faith when God gives you a new nature. What about the promises? What about the patriarchs? They do you no good physically if you don't have faith in the provision of God, Jesus, the atonement, his death and resurrection, if you don't trust in him for salvation, none of that does you any good. So it's as if all that you look to as the kingdom of Israel, all of these unique benefits, being the national chosen people, it does no one any good if you don't look to the Son for salvation. No good. So it's as if whatever was represented in that kingdom is taken. You can't stand on this anymore. It's not going to benefit you. And the opportunity to enter into the kingdom of heaven is taken when you die in unbelief. If you're leaning on any of these things, it doesn't matter. And that's why Paul will open Romans. This is why God will open, or Paul will open Romans by saying, look, I'm Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Hello, good morning. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who descended from David according to the flesh we can trace his lineage he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So what has God's heart always been for? Has God just wanted the people of Israel to the exclusion of every other nation? No, God chose Israel to be a theocracy, to have all these exclusive benefits we see in Romans 9. He chose them not to the neglect of the nations, but to actually reach the nations and reveal his character to the nations. So the kingdom of Israel falls short where Jesus picks it up and brings us into his kingdom. The kingdom of Israel can only take you so far nationally. And everything, again, all of these things, think about this and then we'll be done. Take a sip. When you come to know Christ, it's as if, and people are not going to like this, it's as if you're grafted into the family tree of God's spiritual family. And there's no way around the fact that that includes all the physical benefits Israel had. Meaning all the physical benefits the nation of Israel had 
their spiritual counterparts that are foreshadowed in those physical dimensions, those spiritual counterparts are what you and I are grafted into. We ha- it's as if we've always been in the family tree of Abraham through faith. We're just grafted in like we've always been here. And all the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the people of God apply to me now. And you go, why? Because you're in Christ spiritually through faith. So all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So if you're in him, then all those promises now beautifully apply to you because they apply to his son and he extends them to you by grace. So now all the spiritual counterparts, the worship, the glory, being the temple of God, the children of God, having a new nature and a new heart and and descending spiritually from the patriarchs, all of that is what we're grafted into. But there is no way around the fact that part of our heritage as the people of God spiritually includes a physical dimension that applied to Israel and made way for the Messiah. So we're not saying Israel's everything to the neglect of the nations. And we're not saying God has no plan for Israel anymore. What we're saying is, at least for now, I believe there is a plan future future plan for the nation of Israel. I have not yet fully understood what that is, but I believe there's something. For now, we can say this, that part of our heritage, part of our lineage and our history as the spiritual people of God does include all that the physical kingdom of Israel had, which made way for what we have in Christ. All this stuff While it doesn't matter in a physical dimension anymore, it made way and laid the foundation for what Jesus would do in a spiritual capacity. So do you and I both have a heritage in Christ and the patriarchs as well as the exclusive benefits given to the nation of Israel and what made way? All of that becomes a part of our history. And there are people who don't want to know the history of Israel. Just forget it. God's done with them. No, being an ethnic Jew and national Israel doesn't do anyone any good when they stand before the king of kings for sure. But that doesn't mean that knowing these things and being educated in them and understanding the the culture and environments of Israel, it doesn't mean none of that has any value to us. Now, it's not everything, and some people take it too far, where we, we shift and we everything about us is Israel. Pause. Again, the heritage of our people, spiritually speaking, and the foundation that was laid, involves the kingdom of Israel as a nation. But that was not God's ideal eternally. That was to make way for what is ultimate and what is spiritual, what Jesus brings. So we are grafted into what you might say is the history of the nation of Israel and the kingdom of Israel because all of that is what makes way for the Messiah. And we're grafted into him. And there's a beautiful, rich history and a bunch of benefits that applied to the nation that don't do them any good when they stand before God, but it's still beautiful, it has value, and it makes way for the spiritual. So the kingdom was taken from Israel. And God goes, you are no longer the, 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 what you might say the exclusive chosen 
people outside of the Gentiles. Now, the spiritual kingdom, which transcends your little physical one, the spiritual kingdom is extended to the Gentiles, the Samaritans, the Judeans. Everyone on the planet can enter into this kingdom. And a Gentile who comes from the east and dines at the table with Abraham through faith in the Son is, I'm sorry, has a better position than a Jewish person who doesn't know Jesus as Messiah and doesn't trust in God's provision through the Son, even though they have all the knowledge and information about Israel, it doesn't do them any good when they stand before the king. We as a Western American church specifically, we need to think through prayerfully how the history of Israel and the kingdom of the nation and all of the benefits that come with that and the law, how all of that fits into our new life in Christ. And there is a place that it has. Some people take it too far one direction and other people take it too far the other direction. Has no value. Ignore all of that. Move on. Others, this is everything. Leave everything and become a Jew. And there just has to be a biblical middle ground. Because the kingdom of Israel, as it currently stands, as much as we want to fight against it and be like, but the Israelites, the kingdom of Israel, as it was, has indeed come to an end. And it has been taken. And you might say, the reason why is because the greater kingdom has come which is what the kingdom of Israel was always a part of. It had a role to play. And that doesn't mean God's done with Israel in general. But the role of Israel being an actual kingdom, like as a people, nationally, ethnically, apart from the other nations, that in itself is done. And whatever role it played, it's been immersed into the greater overall kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, through his Son. And the mustard seed has grown and turned into a beautiful tree that not only overtakes and overshadows the nation of Israel, but every other human kingdom on the planet. And this is why we talked about the last two episodes, why God's heart is not just to take over, but to actually like, um, what's the word, Lord? Assimilate. God's heart is to assimilate what is good about any human kingdom on the planet into um, the kingdom of heaven. So whatever prophecies are remain unfulfilled regarding human history and Jesus coming back and whatever you see in the future third temple in Ezekiel, whatever that is, the kingdom of Israel as it currently stands ethnically, nationally, outside of the kingdom of heaven doesn't seem to be a thing as much as they are indeed a nation can't take that away their function and role in God's plan being the kingdom of priests to bring the law and bring the ways that seems to have ended and whatever was true of that in a lesser version has been transferred over into the kingdom of heaven and has been fleshed out and developed even more <laughs> So it's even better. And Israel, sadly, as a nation, is just another one in a long line of rebellious nations that choose to go against God as king. That's just how the cookie crumbles. Is they have come to a place, especially with crucifying the Messiah, where they actually took on the ways 
of the kingdom of darkness. And in that way, identified themselves as having allegiance to the kingdom of darkness and as being opposed to the kingdom of God when they crucified the Son nationally. That's where it stands. That's why it's a tragedy. That's why it's a tragedy. Is because that nation was chosen for so much more. And of course, God knew it would ultimately end the way it did and make way for what it does. But God is not done to be very clear with Israel as well as he's not done with any other nation on the planet. Um, Depending on how you read Revelation and different passages in the New Testament and how you view eschatology, we're going to have differing views, but we have to remember these things aren't ultimate. God's kingdom is. God's kingdom is. So how do we function? Well, if we look at the kingdom of priests that was the nation of Israel in its installment, you and I should learn to live and function as priests set apart, holy unto the Lord, to do his service and to follow his ways and obey his laws. What that looks like, we probably won't get into this series because I've already done different series on each of these concepts. But tomorrow uh, we will do episode four and we will talk about how God's kingdom Israel is actually handed over to those who have the faith of Abraham and what that means for spiritual Israel. I know people don't like those labels, but it's there in scripture. It's very clear in scripture that there is spiritual Israel versus ethnic national and at times they overlap. Hey, thanks for listening to today's message. I need your help. Would you rate this podcast and give it an honest review to let others know what they can expect from this podcast? It would really help us in reaching more people with the truth of God's word. And be sure to check out AboveReproachMinistry.com for all of our free resources like trainings, Bible courses, worksheets, our online church, and much more. Thanks again for listening to this podcast and leaving a good review for others.